things far were different How different would it be? Players growing third arms And infield in the tree Anything is fair game Even Kike's dirty pants And maybe if you're lucky We'll co-call by the chance You never know precisely Where it's gonna go By definition Effectively wild Hello and welcome to episode 2016 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangrass. Hello, Meg. Hello. I sound froggy today. I didn't even realize I've been on vocal rest basically the entire day in preparation for this podcast because I'm sort of under the weather, as is my wife. And so we've both been communicating via hand gestures, mostly. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been largely silent in our household, our den of illness today. And I was trying to save my voice until we started the podcast. And I wasn't actually sure how I would sound. And now I have discovered that this is how I would sound. So I, I guess... I've got an extra deep resonant thing going on here, but I've also got a, oh, he sounds sick thing going on here. Yeah, it's your flu game. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got my day quilt going, so we'll see if I can make it through this episode. <laughs> I, I feel better than I sound, I think. Well, that's good. Yeah, and hey, Ellie arrived. Yeah. So, so that's something. I was uh, not feeling my best, and then I saw the news that the Cincinnati Reds had called up Ellie De La Cruz. So here we are leading an episode by talking about the Reds. They demand <sighs> to be discussed these days. It's just a day after Andrew Abbott made his yep. promising major league debut. Now Ellie De La Cruz arrives, a top five prospect in the majors, uh, to say the least. So where does he play, I wonder, is the thing. <sighs> Yeah, I guess we haven't seen a a lineup with him yet, right? No, not as we record, but... Not as we record, but... There's a a logjam there, because Matt McLean, who was called up earlier this year, is off to a strong start himself. Yeah, it's quite the the infield that they're working with now. You know, they have McLean, they have India, who's been on a bit of a tear lately. They have Spencer Steer. They're about to have De La Cruz. They have, well, they also have Kevin Newman. So, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, Kevin, so ungenerous of me. But yeah, I mean, look, when we have talked about the Reds the last couple of years, really. It is because our hand has been forced by, you know, um, certain members of the organization or adjacent to the organization not really covering themselves in glory when they've talked about the Reds. Mm -hmm. And there's still work to be done here, right? This is not, I think, a club that we would, even when De La Cruz comes up, even if, even if he is everything that we think he will be, which is Potentially great, obviously volatile, 20,000 feet tall, just like one of the biggest men, just one of Mm -hmm. the biggest, tallest men, right? There is still work here, and they are not, I think, positioned at this exact moment to be a a powerhouse, a juggernaut, but it's starting to get, Ben, kind of exciting, you know? It's getting Mm -hmm. to be kind of interesting over there in a way that I'm sure for Reds fans is is a huge relief. 
but if they can get consistent and really good production out of their position players, if they can continue to promote their promising young guys, if they do a good job of self-scouting and and identify for themselves, you know, here are the dudes on that infield on the prospect side who we think are going to be real franchise cornerstones. Here are some other guys who we maybe would trade, you know, if they, God forbid, spend a little bit of money. Like, mm-hmm. this is a club that I think can be can be pretty good and not just within the context of an NL central that is, you know, wanting when it comes to really like, yeah, we're going to come and get you clubs, but, but good. They're not there and they need mm-hmm. things to break their way. And some of those things have inherent volatility in them, not just because they're prospects, but because as I mentioned, like the prospects are volatile. Like Ellie has, I think a range of outcomes as wide as his wingspan, which is pretty mm-hmm. wide, but mm-hmm. you know, this, uh, it's cool. I'm going to try to do most of the talking this episode. Just <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Do you yeah. think I've amped Re- enough? Have I recovered my slowly? Point? My my health bar just uh, builds a little bit every time you're talking, <laughs> and I'm not. So I asked Eric Langenhagen about this a couple of weeks ago. How he saw this Reds infield situation shaking out because they're top five shortstops according to Fangraphs and MLB Pipeline are all infield prospects yep. uh, Ellie and McLean among them but also Edwin Arroyo is in the mix uh, Noel V. Marte is in the mix Cam right. Collier is in the mix yeah. and others too I, I guess uh, Spencer Steer maybe he doesn't qualify anymore but it's middle infielders or, or corner infielders all the way down Right. and he was saying that he thinks Jose Barrero, who's been in the big leagues, is the best defender of the bunch, but he doesn't think he'll hit enough to be a contender there, yeah. strikes out too much. And so for Eric, Edwin Arroyo is a future second baseman, Nuovi yep. Marte is a future third baseman, and so it's either Ellie or McLean at shortstop, and Ellie is mistake-prone but more talented, he said. So yeah. That could go either way. I guess McLean has a head start. He's uh, been entrenched there for a little while now and has hit well, but Ellie De La Cruz has been lurking below ever since McLean was called up because it yeah. seems like not a day goes by that I don't see Ellie De La Cruz hit like a 500-foot homer or something it's, in the minors. You know? It is. So between the speed and between the power, just everything that he's done there, everyone's excited to see him. Now, According to Roster Resource, as we record here on Tuesday afternoon before a lineup has actually come out, Ellie is listed as a DH, and I guess he could get some playing time and and some plate appearances there. But I don't know if uh, Kevin Newman will be on his way out sometime soon or or whether they'll be hesitant to play one of their future shortstops at a corner. But it's suddenly a really interesting dilemma and a good dilemma (laughs) and and an exciting one to resolve. And with them so often, it's, it's been about players playing out of position or not really having a shortstop or trying to make someone into a shortstop or a center fielder who wasn't really suited to that. And now, as I said on a recent episode, it's a surfeit of shortstops. They have more shortstops, more promising players at these positions than there are positions. So between that and the guys they have at the top of that rotation, it's really exciting. And I guess the common thread between the Reds and the Pirates, other than having supersized shortstops, (laughs) and I guess... uh, O'Neill versus Ellie is kind of an interesting debate to have, right? Yeah. But 
beyond that, I guess the big question is, will either of these ownership groups actually spend on right. these teams to surround these promising prospects that they've developed and are beginning to promote with other players? Will they actually spend on the rest of those rosters? Because that's the one thing that they don't really have track records of doing. Maybe they've done it more than they are now, yeah. but maybe still not sufficiently. You can build a contending club and you can do it by drafting well and being, you know, really strong in the international market and using those consolidation trades to acquire guys who can help bolster your young core. You can do it. But as we've noted several times before, it's just a it's a harder road to hoe when you don't have signing talented players as another means of player acquisition. So I think it is, you're right to say, like the the big pressing question. You know, we spend all this time talking about the infielders as well as we should, but I continue to be excited about seeing like what Andrew Abbott can do for folks who maybe haven't kept up with our sort of top 100 updates. Like he he was promoted from AAA to the big league. So it's not like he was just hanging out below that, but he was in a league that was using the the pre-tacked balls. Mm-hmm. And as we've discussed, like that had some interesting effects on, on pitchers, especially guys like him who are already um, sort of talented from a spin perspective. So I'm excited for him to keep accruing data away from that league <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> just to get a sense of like what it's really going to look like. So yeah. 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 Yep. A new StatCast superstar has arrived. So from the Reds to the Red Sox, mm. who, despite having a better record than the Reds, are not quite as fun to talk about and think about right now. And they are in last place in a great division, even though they're 500. Did you see the play in the Red Sox-Rays game, which uh, started with Yandy Diaz, and this was a, a throwback ground beef ball for Ground him. beef ball. Yeah, this was like a Baltimore chop, except it was a Tampa Bay chop. It was a Yandy Diaz chop. It was a ground beef chop. Yeah, and somehow... <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> somehow, it, it's a, a meat meat chop, right? Uh, it's a chop of mutton. I don't know. Anyway, don't know. two runs scored on this grounder, and... It was one of those just like Benny Hill, yakety sacks kind of clips where you just don't understand how many balls are thrown away. It was like, you know, a chopper through a hole in the infield and then things were going fairly normally. There was a play at the plate, but it wasn't really a play. And then the catcher threw it away and it just went all the way into center field and everyone looked bad. And I feel like we need some stat for this because I want to be able to look up just like embarrassing defensive plays, you know, like just mistakes with a bullet, just like mistakes that you couldn't classify. I I mean, I guess there were probably multiple errors on this play. I didn't actually see how it was scored. So you could look up plays with multiple errors, but there are some plays that just rise above or sink below others. Like the outcome might be the same, but just the level of incompetence, the little leagueness of what is transpiring just sets it apart. And I wish that there were a way to isolate those. Like I, I know on baseball Reddit, they talk about fart slams. 
sports slams. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's like a, a noble tiger. I, I guess is a another one. All these acronyms, these extremely long acronyms for things that happen on the field, like a, a toot bland, You know, yeah. thrown out on the bases, like a an income poop is one, or a noble tiger is a no out spaces loaded ending with team incapable of getting easy run. <laughs> that one it doesn't flow so smoothly. But the fart slam is fielder fielder allows runner to score like a moron which (laughs) which, yeah i I don't love that one because it it makes it sound like the runner is scoring like a moron yeah the the like a moron is the fielder right it's not precise right it should be fielder like a moron allows runner to score (laughs) or something but even that i've seen people make the case that that should be reserved for when a, a fielder it's less of a physical mistake than a mental mistake. Yeah. It's like you're just standing there arguing about a call while the runner is still circling the bases, like kind of the, the classic Chuck Knobloch sort of mistake yeah. or miscue. So this is like, you know, just one that that makes it look like you forgot how to field and yeah. never took fielding practice. Like, I don't know if there's an acronym for that or a way to just isolate those plays because I just I want to watch them on a loop and make my own blooper reel and have those be searchable on Baseball Savant. And, and I don't know that there's a way to just identify those particularly egregious mistakes. They should be tagged as like super errors or something, yeah, super, which I was yeah. I was going to offer, and then I feel like creatively deficient in the face of <laughs> of Reddit. So when this happened, I saw David Lorela tweet: "If anyone needs proof that the Tampa Bay Rays are a better baseball team than the Red Sox, we just saw a great example of why at Fenway Park." And I was like, "Oh, like was there you know like a particularly well struck ball? Was there maybe like a normal error? You know, not a super error?" And then I saw the play, and I went, "Oh no!" <laughs> yeah. I think for me, the best part of it is that at least the clip that I saw of it ends with Corey Kluber and his stony face just telegraphing despite his lack of expression. What the hell just happened out there? <laughs> yeah. As he's like waiting to cover. Oh gosh, poor guy. It's pretty bad. You know, it's one of the ones that you know, I imagine as a player, you're going to be asked about post game and hope that everyone just like gets lost on their way to the locker room, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it does humanize them, I think. Just oh, because yeah. Because for a moment, there's just a lapse or multiple lapses, and you actually see what the, the gulf of skill is typically between the majors and, and that kind of play, which any of us could make in a weekend softball game or in Little League or some recreational game, but you don't tend to see that at the major league level, and so it's jarring when you do. But I feel like if there were a way to query that and stat blast that, the Red Sox would be up there in recent years. Despite not having been a truly terrible team, there have been worse teams. But when it comes to super errors, they've made so many, like so many stand out in my mind. Just like last season, I mean, you had the notorious Jaron Duran play in center where he just uh, lost the ball and sort of stood there. But that was one of many where it was like the Red Sox just seemingly forgot how to track pop-ups for a while. It was weird. Anyway, I saw a quote 
about this by Red Sox manager Alex Cora, who was not pleased about this play. And he said, I've seen that play too many times in the last two years. You've got to throw the ball to the right base. You've got to back up. You cannot become a spectator. It's just not good baseball. Yeah. And when I read that, I thought, you know, whose fault is that, Alex? I mean, you are the manager of this team, right? So on the one hand, he could come down harshly and, and say this is unacceptable. But also he is the person responsible responsible for getting the Red Sox not to make so many super errors. So some part of his mind, when he is blasting a play like this, he must be like, huh, but also if if I say this is unacceptable baseball, I'm ultimately the one who's responsible for this. I'm supposed to, to teach this team the fundamentals, if not directly, then at least indirectly. So the harsher my criticism, the more incompetent my managing yeah. looks. <laughs> so that, that was like a we're all looking for the guy who who did this kind of thing. Not that he was the one committing the errors, but, right. you know, it's uh, ultimately his job to remind his players how to play defense. You hope that that reminder comes behind the closed clubhouse door and not through the media. But yes. like, also, what is he supposed to say? Like, he can't sure. be like, no, it's fine, actually. <laughs> think yeah. think that's a good brand of Red Sox baseball. We're, you know, we're sitting here and uh, a very calm crowd is super excited that that's the product that we're putting on the field at this particular moment. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I did want to bring up a better AL East team, and that's the Yankees and specifically Aaron Judge. Judge, as we speak, he has a uh, a bit of a toe situation. Yeah. And uh, he's going to get his toe checked out because, of course, he ran through a wall. Literally and... <laughs> ran through a wall. Like, you know, sometimes we're prone to hyperbole, but no, no, mm-hmm. ran, nope. ran, ran right through it. Yep. And yep. with some players, the wall would win. But I would say Aaron Judge won this showdown with the wall. But yes. potentially a Pyrrhic victory in that he hurt his toe. And we yeah. will find out how hurt it is. But... His stats, as Jason Stark, among others, have pointed out, are almost identical to his stats through the same point last season. Through the first 49 games last year, he had hit 19 homers. Through his first 49 games this year, he has hit 19 homers. Same number of multi-homer games, almost identical runs and runs batted in totals, uh, 29 extra bases this year, 28 extra base hits. That is, last year, same number of plate appearances per homer. He's slugging 674 compared to 660 last year. His OPS is about 50 points higher this year, all of which would lead you to believe that uh, he's going to do it again. He's going to make another run for 62 or perhaps higher, pending his toe and whether he will miss more time. I guess, though, that the balls are flying more this season and better and farther. And as we've noted, it's not like Aaron Judge really needs a juiced ball to hit balls over the fence, but it can't hurt him to have a ball that flies farther. And so some of these stats may be a little less impressive relative to the league than they were last year in a more depressed offensive environment. But what stands out to me is that At this point last season, I don't know that we were really talking about him hitting 62. I mean, the surprising thing about his 2022 season was that he kept getting better as the season went on. And just when you thought that he would have to cool off, instead he heated up and everyone on the Yankees was either hurt or ice cold. And Aaron Judge was, to the extent that any one player can carry a team, he was carrying a team for 
months at a time, and he got better as the season went on. So he was not initially necessarily on pace to hit as many homers as he hit, but he improved his pace and and certainly didn't slacken from the pace, really. So he's not actually on pace to hit 62 this year, even if he misses no more time, because for one thing, while we're comparing his first 49 games in each season, he has missed more time this year because yeah. he was uh, on the IL earlier with his hip issue, which didn't cost him a ton of time. But when you're making runs at records, uh, every Any time game matters, right? counts, yeah. Yeah. So between that and the fact that not only would he have to continue to hit at the same pace, but he would have to up his pace the way he did last year, he's Probably not going to make another run at a record-setting home run total, even though the conditions, offensively speaking, are somewhat more favorable this year. And yet, like, what, he had a 211 OPS plus last year. He's down to, like, 193 this year, which is still great. And Jason said, how many hitters in the last 80 years have spun off back-to-back qualifying seasons with a 190 OPS plus or better? Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, and Barry Bonds, right? And even before that, it's like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Rogers Hornsby and Jimmy Fox. It's like very few players have done that multiple times in their career, let alone in back-to-back seasons. So he's he's still having an all-time great offensive season here, even though he probably will not be chasing the same stats that he was last year, unless he has another gear that he finds as this season goes on like he did last year. I have two competing bits of speculation about Aaron Judge's mindset. Are you ready Mm -hmm. for them? Yeah. On the one hand, maybe it does bum him out that the ball is a little bit juicier because, like, maybe he likes the challenge. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe he wants to just really pulverize an anemic, a only afflicted baseball. (laughs) You know, maybe he's like, this isn't as hard, so I don't want (laughs) to keep doing it. On the other hand, do you think that a part of him is almost a little bit, tiniest bit, this small bit relieved that he's not on pace to match his his home run production from last year or anyone else's, you know, notable record-setting historic production from prior seasons, eras, times. <laughs> because I have to imagine, like this this guy has obviously demonstrated that he can. He can handle the bright lights, right? Like, yes. <laughs> he's been a Yankee his entire professional career. He's had incredible seasons. He had this run last year. He managed to break the AL record. He did all of that stuff. And he's going to attract attention regardless of exactly what pace he's on because he's the most notable player on the most one of the, if not the most notable club in, in Major League Baseball. But it's got to be nice to not be like, having a microphone in your face about, you know, and have to like spend so much time thinking about and potentially interacting with like the offspring of Roger Maris, you know? <laughs> yes. And you're no longer being, being stalked by the spawn of yeah. Maris all season. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, they're here again. Like <laughs> talking to them again mm-hmm. and again. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that what he would say and probably what is the dominant feeling in his heart is that he would love to 
he'd like to break the all-time record and he'd like to, you know, take his team as far as he can. And if that means hitting a billion home runs, he'll do it. But I do wonder sometimes if guys are just like, "Eh, I'm really good, right? I'm in this sweet spot where no one right now, well, I won't say no one because, you know, it's a big country and it's a broad fan base. So there might be someone out there who's having an unhinged kind of day, but I doubt strongly that there is a sizable contingent of Yankees fans that are like, oh, man, we're regretting that contract right now, right? Yeah. He's just really, really good. He's doing incredible stuff. He's having the kind of season where, you know, we're going to see him crashing into and through. What Do we know for sure that it was a wall and not the bullpen door? He opened it if it is the door, to be <laughs> clear. I'm not trying to diminish the thing. But, like, did he break a wall or is that the bullpen door? That's a, it's a good question. It looked like a wall to me. Yeah. But, <laughs> but regardless of uh, what, what kind of architectural purpose it's serving in Dodger Stadium, we're going to see that clip for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. going to be on highlight packages forever. When Aaron Judge, if he ends up in Cooperstown, that's going to play the day that he gets inducted, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to see that forever. He has this great, you know, AL record that he's set. He's clearly so good and talented. No one is regretting the offseason signing. But again, he's not having to, like, wonder where Roger Maris's son is. Like, this Mm -hmm. might just be the perfect sweet spot. And if they can put together a little run if the pitching can get healthier slash more effective, depending on who you're talking about. Like, he could still have a magical season, but one that is a lot about him, but a little less about him. And that might Mm -hmm. be preferable you know i don't know i don't i don't know the mind of aaron judge i don't know the heart of the man mm-hmm. um i know he is a really cute dog i've learned yeah. that about him this season oh, also yeah nothing has made me like aaron judge more i mean i i didn't dislike him right there's but he's watching him interact un- with the dog pretty unobjectionable guy mostly as far as we know but yeah seeing him the other day in the outfield with his tiny dachshund, uh, as, tiny dachshund. as a dachshund man myself that uh that warmed my heart and his whole like he and Rizzo have bonded over their mutual dachshund ownership they're both dachshund dudes that just obviously makes me feel for them but yeah watching this more closely I I think it probably it it was a bullpen door that he he knocked partly open forced it open he did, yeah. And look, I, I wouldn't uh, discount his ability to just crash through a wall. Yeah. The, the way that uh, I guess the famous uh, just running through a wall is like Rodney McRae, the minor leaguer in the 90s, just literally ran right through a wall, which looked flimsier than this one. Or I don't know, I guess there have been some other ones like a Shane Victorino play. But yeah, if if anyone is just going to bulldoze and, and Kool-Aid man right through a wall, it would be. Aaron Judge. And I believe Aaron Boone said, we're the visitors. It's not our fault that Judge knocked the wall down. <laughs> so that's that's how he put it. And I mean, if you watch it, how could you not view it that way? So print the legend, I guess. Aaron Judge, he ran through a wall. If it is the door, which I think you're right, I think it might be the bullpen door. As I look at it again, I think that's what it is. I don't think this was a situation where it was left slightly ajar and a guy runs through it that happens mm-hmm. i think he opened the door with the force of his body so i don't know that it's any less impressive but if it will make people appreciate just his sheer hulking force 
Um, then yeah, print the legend. That's mm-hmm. fine. But yes, uh, you're right. I would. It would be a load off my mind if I were Aaron Judge and oh, I didn't man. didn't have to answer those questions every day. Yeah. Even if unfailingly, he always said and would say, "Oh, it's about winning the World Series. It's yeah. about the championship. It's about the team, et cetera, et cetera." But yeah, I guess we didn't really get so many stories about you know his hair falling out, uh, Roger Maris style under the pressure. But right. I'm sure he was feeling it. So yes, yeah. uh, you'd think that having had a season for the ages and won the MVP award and gotten a giant contract and being named the captain. I mean, you, you've got everything. You won, right? And right, not totally. that you can take the to your foot off the pedal and, and just coast for the rest of your career. I'm sure he, he still wants to achieve as much as he can achieve. But, oh, yeah. But one little day, one little season to enjoy what you, what you did. I mean, yeah. like... If I have a, a day where I publish a couple articles or a, an article in a podcast or something and I did a lot of work for those, like the, the day after that, I'll just be like, all right, I can kind of rest on my laurels today. Like, I'll yeah. take it easy. And that's, that's not quite the same as hitting 62 homers. So, yes, I, I think he is entitled to that. If I am Aaron Judge, I'm working really hard. I'm trying to lift my team. But I also would take time to play with my tiny ducks. And he picked such a small dog. Mm-hmm. And he's such a big man. And there are very <laughs> few things that we consistently enjoy, I think, as much as the contrast between a very big guy and a tiny dog. Just mm-hmm. like a tiny is I mean, like they're long, but they're small. They're not big yep. dogs. You know, yep. they're they're lengthy, but they mm-hmm. are we. They're we. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. There was a term I may have mentioned already that Sam Miller introduced me to because he was introduced to it himself recently, the dig me day, which was a a Tom Glavin term, or, or I guess it was recently resurfaced by Tom Glavin, but it was originated by Greg Maddox. And it's basically like the day after you start, you have a good start. It's just a dig me day. It's like treat yourself, you know, just kick back and relax and enjoy the great thing that you did (laughs) and don't put extra pressure on yourself. So he gets to have a dig me year, basically. And he is playing more or less as well as he was through the same number of games last year. So we'll see what trajectory he takes uh, from now on probably won't be the win that he did last year but you never know we you didn't think know. he would do that last year either is doxin dude the like accepted vernacular i don't know doxy dude i probably doxy go with dude doxy yeah. dude that kind of makes it sound sound like you're doxing someone though i yeah. don't know you might want to workshop that one <laughs> okay <laughs> what are we going to do about alec manoa mm, staying within know. The AL East here. I, we got a, an email from a Patreon supporter the other day that I read on the outro in an effort to improve Alec Manoa's fortunes. And it was all about like, hey, can you say something about Alec Manoa the way that you said something about Jose Barrios? And as soon as he brought up Barrios, he started pitching much better. Maybe you can work the same magic on Alec Manoa. And the magic did not work in Alec Manoa's most recent start, which no. was just a disaster, really. And yeah. his season was already disastrous coming into that start. So he just looks lost now. It's yeah. not entirely clear what the problem is or or how many different problems there are or right. how long he is for that rotation. I mean, he got one out against the Astros in his most recent start, 
and he gave up seven runs and, and six hits. Like, walks have been his biggest problem. He only had time to allow one walk before he was yanked because he was just giving up nonstop hits and he gave up yeah. a homer. There was only actually one walk mixed in there, but he has just completely fallen apart after a, a Cy Young finalist season. I hate that terminology, but yeah. I guess uh, we could could just say that uh, he finished third in AL Cy Young voting last year and got MVP votes and was an all-star and was even better than he had been in his rookie year when he got some rookie of the year votes. And now it is ugly. He's uh, yeah. just he's leading the major leagues in walks a yeah. He's, he's gone from walking like two per nine to walking six and a half per nine. Yeah. He just does not seem to know where the ball is going, and mm -hmm. yet it has not been effectively wild. It has been extremely ineffectively wild. He has a 17% K rate, almost 15% walk rate. Oof. Numbers last year were basically 23% and 6.5% respectively. He's a 151 ERA minus and FIP minus, which mm. that's not what you want. You know, no. it's it's not what you want. And like, I know there has been some pitch mix changes like around the periphery. It's not like he has a new pitch that's going badly. Like he, I think he's throwing his four-seamer less and he's throwing his sinker more and like it's just it's he looks lost out there and it really sucks because like he seems he's a great interview he's a super mm -hmm. affable guy and yeah. yeah when it's going well it's super fun to watch but when you suddenly start walking everyone and then allowing more home runs it's a that doesn't you know <laughs> yeah it's pretty bad there was some encouraging news in Dan Zimborski's recent post uh, where he has these Z stats, as he calls them, sort yeah. of uh, expected stats filtered through the lens of zips. And so he showed some of the pitching underachievers through the end of May. And Alec Manoa was the fourth FIP underachiever, the pitcher whose FIP is worse than it should be or than he has deserved for it to be based on other underlying numbers. In fact, Manoa was uh, just below his teammate, Yusei Kikuchi, which could have been encouraging for Blue Jays fans reading that, at least before Manoa then made a subsequent start and looked the worse he has this season. But if you look at the walks specifically – he was uh, at the very top of the walk underachievers list mm -hmm. by a lot. Like his expected walks were like 28 and his actual walks were 41. That's a, a very big difference. And Dan wrote, if you're wondering what happened to Manoa, Zips is right there with you. It agrees that he should be allowing a lot more walks this year as his first strike and swing percentage numbers have eroded significantly since 2022's breakout campaign. But 15% is a massive number and expected walks only gives a few pitchers every year a 15% or worse. A 10% walk rate for Manoa would be ugly, but would also at least take some of the the pain out of some wretched 2023 numbers. So even the upside he concedes is still ugly. So that's not a great position to be in. But but that at least looked 
better, it looked like, okay, maybe better times are, are ahead. And while he hasn't been great, uh, it's not quite as bad as it's looked. But then he looked so, so bad it's in so his bad. most recent outing. So, yeah, now it's it's not even clear whether they're just going to have him take a break of some sort yeah. or or what exactly. Like, you always wonder, is there some sort of underlying injury that right. either he's hiding or he himself is not entirely aware of, right? Yeah. But it's just affecting his mechanics in some way. John Schneider, the Blue Jays manager, said everything is on the table when it comes to trying to help him regain his form. So he's slated to start on Saturday against the Twins. But yeah, just across the board, uh, everything has been bad. And it's just a very sudden, disastrous decline yeah. without an obvious underlying cause. Although I wonder whether eventually we'll learn that there was one. I guess if I am comforted by anything when it comes to Manoa, and it's as an aside, you know, sometimes when you uh, scroll over the the Fangraphs search bar, a player's name is there because it's like, oh, he's so good, or he just got called up, or he's an exciting young prospect. And then sometimes you're like, oh, Alec Manoa is third. Why? Oh, people are trying to understand. So I know that when he has talked to Fangraphs in the past, like David Lorla interviewed him in the early part of last season, as I recall. And he seems like a guy who is, you know, he's, like I said, affable, but like also like open to information. And, you know, he might not be like in the super duper weeds on analytics, but clearly as an antagonistic to them and is thinking about his pitch mix and grips and thumb placement and all kinds of stuff in like a heady way. And so if you are a Blue Jays fan and you're clawing for some kind of optimism here and Dan's article didn't really (laughs) give it to you, like it does seem like he's going to be the kind of guy who is open to feedback. And so if they can, you know, come up with a way to like not only diagnose what ails him, but, you know, suggest tweaks to the repertoire, to his mechanics, whatever. Like, he's not Bumgarner, right? Like, mm-hmm. he is open to information, seemingly, and will try to enact it. And, you know, that that's good. But it does seem like he might benefit from a harder reset than just, you know, the typical time off he gets start to start because it's really not working. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I hope that there will be better things ahead for him. There yeah, me could too. hardly be worse things. <laughs> but people are, are invoking Halliday, right? And, and saying maybe he needs sort of a, a Halliday-esque demotion or break, like uh, send him to AAA, send him to the pitching lab, and just uh, hope that he comes back his old self or a new better self or concoct some reason to put him on the IL if there isn't some obvious underlying reason that uh, he and the team are actually aware of just to give him a break and let him build himself back up again. But yeah, you just it got to the point where it's uncomfortable to watch in that most recent start. So you don't want it to stay at that point. And that was, I guess, only the second most depressing pitching development or news in the past few days oh, because... Yeah. There was also the news, if you can call it news, about Steven Strasburg, which is that 
there is no news, really. There's nothing to report. He is not doing anything. And the headline on the Washington Post piece was Steven Strasburg is completely shut down from physical activity again. Right. Which makes it sound like, I mean, physical activity, it's not even saying like baseball activity. He's shut down from physical activity makes it sound like he's bedridden or something, like he's just not even moving, which I hope that's not quite the case. But some little anecdotes in the story make it sound like it's not that far from that because right. it's it's not even just a matter of can he pitch in the majors, can he throw a ball again? It's like, can he lead a normal, comfortable life, right? Yeah. Because there are bits in here about how just like he couldn't be comfortable, right? Like he was having numbness, you know, like he's had all sorts of issues. Like he has nerve issues and he had thoracic outlet syndrome and it's been kind of tough to pin down what's going wrong exactly. And he said, you know, as recently as last summer, the story by Jesse Darty says, Strasburg couldn't stand for long before his right hand went numb. He often had to lie down and press his hand against his chest to be a warped version of comfortable. So that was the line that really got to me because uh, it it wasn't just like, you know, he was trying to ramp up to baseball activities and then he was trying to do lower body exercises and stay in shape and he couldn't do that. Okay. He couldn't do strenuous physical activity. Well, that's a little bit different from he just, he couldn't even stand without his hand going numb. Like that's when you start to worry about the rest of his life and the quality of it, as opposed to just whether he'll be back on a baseball When the phrase severe nerve damage is being invoked, you know, that you're in, you know, territory where the concern extends for the person even more than the player. It's like, is you know, are you going to be able to, like, pick up your kids and do, you know, normal day-to-day stuff? It would be upsetting no matter what. And I don't want to say that if Strasbourg had had, like, a crummy career that it wouldn't have been devastating because like this is a person's health and and long-term comfort and you know you want to put that in its proper context and and put the proper sort of perspective and priority on it which is it's more important than what he does as a baseball player and also he was such a good baseball player. right yeah <laughs> you know it's just i think it brings home for me that the sort of slow decline, the slide into being ineffective and then unrosterable. Like there's maybe a lot more dignity in that than we sometimes appreciate, right? We tend to draw this contrast with Guy's career ending where it's like, you know, you either get the the David Ortiz where you go out on a high note, you know, everyone sort of celebrates you and gives you your roses, but you also have a great season in your final season and then nothing. And it's like, actually like the smooth decline, a lot to be said for the smooth decline relative <laughs> yeah. to the abrupt ending because, you know, he was trying so hard to get back and I get that, but also for the final four years of his professional career, and it's not like he's officially done, but it sounds like he's done, right? Mm -hmm. In 2019, he threw 209 innings. Yeah. And then 2025, and like, you know, that was a weird year, but that wasn't the reason that he threw just five innings. And then 21 and a third innings in 2021, and four and a third, four and two thirds, rather, in 2022. It's just like, you know, this was a guy who... I just remember how amped we all were for him to debut. I remember like 
Prospect Town sitting there being like, oh my God, I can't believe we get to watch it. We finally get mm-hmm. to watch it, you know, for him to be feted the way he was as a prospect and then to to arrive and be so good. And it's just a, it's a profound, it's a profound bummer. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking if this is it for him, I think his career, I, I don't think you could call it a disappointment, no. right? I mean, it's disappointing, obviously, that it's not longer and and even more productive. And given that he was one of the most hyped prospects of all time, I suppose anything short of a Hall of Fame career could be construed as a disappointment, sort of, but got a lot of great moments with him, right? It's not one of these stories where like some young pitcher with uh, incredible promise gets hurt and and we just never get to see him make good on that. I mean, he was incredible in the majors at times and for long stretches. Like, obviously, durability was always something of an issue, but he was uh, from... 2012 through 2019, even though he only had two 200-plus inning seasons during that time, or I guess in his whole career, he was a top 10 pitcher in the majors by baseball reference war. Okay, he was exactly 10th, but <laughs> top 10. <laughs> and that's despite the the shutdown and the Tommy John and everything. And of course, the electric debut was just a memory of a lifetime. I mean, yeah. most players in a 20-year career might not give you as memorable a game or an outing as Strasburg did in his very first one in that first season before he got hurt the first time. And when he was healthy and and at his best, like he was as good as advertised, right? Yeah. And, and then in 2019, he helped his team win a World Series. And he was he a was, World Series MVP. Yeah, he was a huge part of that, right? So I think he could look back on it someday, hopefully in better health and, and say, I had a nice career. It wasn't all I oh, would have yeah. wanted or all anyone would have wanted for me. But he he didn't uh, fail to fulfill his potential. He perhaps didn't uh, fulfill it quite as often or for as long as he would have liked to or we would have liked him to. But but he was as good as advertised, and he had more than his fair share of moments. So it was a great career if that's oh, yeah. the whole career. And I, I think much of the takeaway and the discussion that was prompted by this article was about the Nationals not being covered for this sort of eventuality here because there was reporting in the piece. I'll I'll quote here from Jesse who wrote, the Nationals do not have any disability insurance on Strasburg's contract. According to four people familiar with the situation, the premiums would have been extremely high, two people explained. And that's assuming the team and an insurance company could have agreed on a policy given Strasburg's age and extensive injury history. And three people familiar with the situation doubt ownership would have spent on top of the $245 million, yeah. even if doing so would have provided some financial protection in a worst-case scenario. So is that ownership being penny-wise pound-foolish uh, with a pitcher with his track record of injuries, not these particular injuries. Maybe I don't know that anyone could have anticipated just how quickly it, it would have gone south for him health-wise, but to not have that kind of protection, we don't know that much about how insurance works. That whole process is semi-opaque, so yeah. I, I, I can't say 
just how ill-advised it it was. Obviously, in retrospect, it it seems yeah. like an enormous blunder not to have disability insurance uh, given what has happened to him, and so they're all on the hook for for the the full contract here. I don't really know exactly how anomalous the decision not to invest in that was at the time or just how much it would have cost them given his history or or what but obviously you know people have been talking about this being as as great and richly rewarding a contract as the Scherzer deal was for the Nationals the Strasburg deal has uh, turned out to be the opposite you know it's like hey world series hero meant a lot to the organization lots of other players left before that or after that, and Strasbourg was the one they decided to sign, and ultimately that was not the best decision. It's one of those things where I think it would feel incomplete to not note the contract component, but I I hope that certainly when Strasbourg looks back on his own career, that like that part, I'm sure he's not going to be like, oh man, really mm-hmm. took some of the Nationals' money. Mm-hmm. It's like, who cares? But you know, it wasn't a great deal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. but who cares? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't, you know, like we don't, we don't care about Yeah. That. And at the time it came down to Strasbourg or Rendon, right? right. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, they may have ch- chosen unwisely then Indiana Jones style, but there wasn't really like the Holy Grail wasn't there for them. Either one, they were going to just like prematurely age and, uh, and, you know, turn into, to an old person just having drunk from not the Holy Grail. That's kind of, you know, there wasn't really a, a great answer either, either way. Rendon has, has, I guess, played more and provided more on field value, but, but not hardly. as much as he expect, no. or the angels have expected him to, right? No, definitely not. It is, it is kind of like a funny coincidence when you think through, you know, if we are if we're assessing for you know contracts on the basis of did the the player in question sort of provide value and produce war commensurate with you know the the value of the contract, right? And we're gonna do the beep boop boop for, um, version of of assessing that, and that's fine. Like that has its place. It is a funny coincidence to me that the Nationals can boast arguably one of the worst as well as the very best (laughs) of these contracts, right? Because when you think about, you know, Max Scherzer, as we have discussed on this podcast, like when you look at his production for them and the value of that deal, it is like perfect. It aligns almost exactly from a dollars per war perspective, depending on sort of how you're valuing a win in in free agency. And then there's Strasburg. So I guess if I'm the Nationals, hopefully your takeaway is, well, you win some, you lose some. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you wish you could go back in time and uh, portion that money to Bryce Harper or Juan Juan Soto Soto. somehow? I I guess. Yeah, probably. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. There wasn't really a, a great answer when you're choosing between Rendon and, and Strasbourg, yeah. as it turns out, at least as thus far. Out. Yeah. All right. So I did want to mention, I meant to bring this up after we talked about Aaron Judge, because there's a player who's uh, doing things that are almost as extraordinary in a completely different way, a, a totally differently shaped player and a different game, but no less extraordinary what Luis Arias is doing mm. these days. I mean... Every time I think that that batting average is going to fall, it goes up it instead. Goes up, ben. <laughs> it goes up three hits last night. 
Yeah, it uh, it keeps going up at a time when it's supposed to be going down, down. by now, and he's he's batting three ninety nine. Three ninety nine, uh, Ben. That's <laughs> given that we're well into June here. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not seriously on four hundred watch, but even the fact that he's flirting with it at this point in a season, yeah. in in this environment, in this batting average unfriendly environment, yeah. he is absolutely hearkening back to players from earlier eras. I mean, I've seen people listing Tony Gwynn's first X career games and Luisa Rise's first same number of career games, and they have almost identical slash lines. Uh, Literally, I I saw a tweet through their first 444 career games, each of them. They have a 324 batting average, like exactly the same sort of stats. Uh, I saw another one, MLB players in the last 30 regular seasons to have at least seven times more base hits than strikeouts. It's Tony Gwynn several times and Luis Arise in 2023 thus far. And Sarah Langs tweeted highest batting average in team's first 61 games, qualified hitters in expansion era. It's, uh, you know, the famous uh, flirting with 400 seasons of Chipper Jones and Larry Walker and Paul O'Neill and Rod Carew and Tony Gwynn and Roberto Alomar and then Luis Arise. Uh, Like, he is putting himself up with those names or, or here's another one OPS of at least uh, or is OPS plus I guess of at least 160 200 plus plate appearances strikeouts in fewer than 5% of those plate appearances then you're talking about George Brett Don Mattingly Wade Boggs Tony Gwynn Luis Arise so there's a, a lot of season left and I assume that one of these days I'm going to look at the box score and he will not have three or four hits and the batting average will actually start to sink but the fact that he's kept it going even this long and that he has struck out as infrequently as he has. He has a 4.8% strikeout rate. This is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. How? Like, it's it's very funny to me that I was obsessed with Williams Estadio and never really lost my obsession with Williams Estadio completely. And yet, it's not really Astadio I should have been obsessing yeah. over. It was the other Venezuelan infielder who <laughs> came up with the twins at roughly the same time, Luis Arise. And look, Williams Astadio, I, I guess what drew me to him was not only that he never struck out, but that he never did any of the three true outcomes, basically, right? And and he has continued to not do them because uh, since he last played in the majors, he played in 22 Venezuelan Winter League games, and then he's played in 24 games in Japan in the majors and the minors this year. And let's see, 93 plate appearances in Venezuela, 74 plate appearances combined at the two levels in Japan, and he has struck out one time <laughs> in, in all of those plate appearances. And I think he has walked four times and he's hit four homers. Arise, I guess, walks more than Astadio did. Sure. So he, he walks at like roughly a league average rate, uh, yeah. which may be partly because no one wants to face him now that he gets four hits every day. <laughs> well, yeah, like I would I would simply prefer to not if it were me, you know, yeah. if I were given my druthers, I'd be like, no, thank you. Yeah, it, it's hard to be a really valuable offensive player and, and great all-around player when you just don't hit for a lot of power, which he doesn't. He's hit one home run 
this year in 56 games, 231 plate appearances. His isolated power is under 100. So it's tough to be a, an offensive force. So that's that's your slugging percentage minus your batting average. It's it's hard to be an offensive force when it's that low. But then again, I, I guess it's it's hard for anything minus your batting average to be very high when your batting average is 399. Right. So he has a, a 161 WRC plus, which is, you know, not like league leading, but it's it's up there and it's largely batting average driven along with uh, some walks here and there. But you watch him and he kind of looks like he could keep doing this, which is it's maybe sort of deceptive, but he just appears to have the ability to place his hits and hit them where they ain't yeah. and make contact in kind of an intentional way that most players in this era don't try to do and wouldn't be able to do even if they tried. So it's just like he's putting on a, a hitting clinic, like a batting average clinic yep. every day. And it's been a lot of fun to follow. So on on Sunday... Michael Bauman messaged me and he's like, is it too, is it too early to check in on a rise? Like, is it too soon after I wrote about him in April? And I was like, nah, go ahead and do it. And then, uh, and then yesterday he had three hits and I was like, yeah, cool. I just really, uh, we'll never capture this in war, right? And we shouldn't like the aesthetic value stuff is so subjective, but it's just, I think to the game's benefit to have a guy like this, even if, you know, I agree with you, the odds that he actually hits 400 by the time the season's done. Well, he's very small. It's not, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think that having a diversity of looks is exciting. It's fun for baseball. We have so many boppers, you know, we have a lot of guys who are focused on power. They're focused on, you know, they're willing to sacrifice striking out more for hitting with greater authority fine but to have a guy like this who does have just a really different look i think is great like i think it's super fun to have someone who can stand in contrast to a lot of the other hitters in the game and especially in a year where it's like okay we're kind of we're jazzing it up it feels like it feels like baseball has undergone like a nice not a home reno you know because the changes aren't that that aren't that big right we don't have new windows you know Mm -hmm. there's no new cabinets but maybe we painted some of them Mm -hmm. and uh i feel like if i were gonna you know really try to lay claim to this as a like a a metaphor for the season i think it through better than i just did and maybe (laughs) not pick that one but um it's especially fun for me in a year where it feels like we just have a little bit of a, a breath of a fresh something mm-hmm. that you also have a guy like this who he constitutes a breath of fresh air now, but is really a throwback to a different time. Like, it's just a very cool profile to have succeeding mm-hmm. at this level. And what a nice thing to be able to say excited stuff about a Marlins position player, right? Yeah, what a ch- What a cool little change of pace we have there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you you said he's jazzing things up. Jazz Chisholm oh. is is not jazzing things up quite as much. Stupid toes. Rice is is more than compensating yeah. for that. So, yeah, and I I keep wondering, 
how much can he sustain this? And yeah, even though we're sabermetrically inclined, which uh, I guess the stereotype would be that we don't care about batting average. And obviously there's some truth to that stereotype if we're talking about using it as an evaluative tool. But if he actually sustained a run at 400 somehow, I would be pretty into that, even though I would acknowledge uh, the evaluative weaknesses of batting average, knowing how much the odds are stacked against him in this era to yeah. make a run oh, at yeah. a 400 average in this high strikeout era where even with the positioning restrictions, BABIP and, and all of that, I mean, it's it's still, it's hard to get hits these days. And so for him to be striking out as infrequently as he is, uh, he's just a total throwback. He's like a player out of another era. And I like that. I like players who seem to be from the future or from the distant past. And and somehow we're still watching them now. And so if you look at like the expected stats for him, it would suggest there's regression coming. Now, I guess there would always be an expectation that regression is coming when someone's batting 399. He's hitting 399, Ben. Yeah, I mean, it would be weird if uh, if there were, you know, like... Famously a regression candidate. Right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and probably most of the people who have hit 400, which hasn't happened in a very long time, they probably got a little lucky along the way. I mean, there were some guys who, who did it multiple times and did it over a long enough stretch that it was clear that that was probably their true talent level, but also you have to have some luck and some sure. balls bouncing your way to hit for that high an average. But if you were to look at his expected batting average or his expected weighted on base average, then those things are are considerably lower than his actual thus far. So like, I guess uh, looking at players with 100 plate appearances, the gap between his weighted on base average and his expected 49 points, that is the sixth biggest gap or the gap between his batting average and his expected batting average is 67 points, which is the third biggest gap. Then again, he did beat his expected batting average by a cumulative uh, 23 points over the previous four seasons. You could convince me that it doesn't work for him, right? Like that the... The expected batting average model does not quite work for Luis Arias the way that it works for most people because, yeah, he doesn't hit the ball that hard. Like, he's not going to give you a lot of barrels, but – I think most of those models are kind of based around the idea that it's good to hit the ball hard and it's uh, good to hit it at a certain trajectory, but it doesn't necessarily take into account, are you directing the ball laterally? Is the spray angle such that uh, you could actually beat out more of these balls? Like, you know, sometimes it, it will take into account sprint speed on some weekly hit balls and that kind of thing. Or if you look at individual plays, maybe it'll take into account where on the field it was hit, not just how hard and how high, but on the whole, it might be saying, oh, this guy doesn't hit the ball that hard. Therefore, his expected batting average is a lot lower than his actual batting average. When in reality, he actually does have this preternatural ability. There's actual skill here. Yeah, to not only put the bat on the ball, but also to direct the ball in such a way that it it goes in a direction where he's more likely to get a hit. So I do, to some extent, believe in his ability to beat those expected stats, maybe not by 50 or 60 points. 
points, but, uh, right. but by by some number that uh, the I guess the the lift that he has to have in order to keep his numbers up in the stratosphere where they are right now might not be quite as uh, as heavy as as you might think based on the regression that those metrics would forecast. Yeah, I think to be clear, like again, I don't think he's likely to hit 400, but I think that this is an important point to keep in mind as we're assessing that likelihood. As Bauman said on this point in his piece, like if it's a fluke, it's a fluke that he's perpetuated over five years and 1,800 plate appearances, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought Bauman put it well, like if you're putting the ball in play as much as Arise does, he's giving himself an opportunity to benefit from the, you know, vagaries of the batted ball. And sometimes, oftentimes, those will break in the fielder's favor, but not always. And so if you combine an actual ability to try to direct the ball with, you know, the fact that fielders are fielders and sometimes they are going to goof or if they're not going to goof necessarily, like they're not going to be positioned optimally, then you know, mm-hmm. like that, yep. Ben. And I think that if he does end up doing it, it'll be impressive for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is, and I hadn't really realized this until Bauman wrote this piece, but like he's sort of on pace right now to play a full season. And if you look back on, you know, the the highest sort of batting average seasons, even among qualifiers, like sometimes they're like just squeaking they're just squeaking mm-hmm. over that line right they're missing big stretches of the year so yeah we we got an email from a, a patreon supporter jj who said how many mvps would Luis arise win if it were 1963 oh my or God. yeah i mean certainly like look uh tony gwynn never won an mvp yeah now, that's you know, true he, he was playing more recently sure. than the 1963 but also true Yes, I, I think if he were playing at an earlier era, you would not have uh, me casting cold water on him by pointing out his isolated power and sure. his, his WRC+. Plus. Uh, not that people in earlier eras were entirely unaware of the fact that it, it was good to hit for, for power. That's been known for quite a long time, and, and most of the big baseball stars of yesteryear also hit for power, but... I think, yeah, if uh, if he were making a run at 400. Again, though, it's like hitting for this high an average was not quite as impressive back then as it would be now. It, it was obviously always impressive, but to do it now would just be otherworldly with uh, just how hard it is in this environment to hit for that high an average. So, yeah. like, if he somehow maintained his stats that, that he's putting up now for the rest of the season— and the Marlins somehow kept up their pace because the Marlins are kind of, it's like they're a rise writ large. Like they are somehow defying what we know about baseball and what should be possible because they're second place in the yeah, NL East. They're only and three games back. They've been outscored by 34 runs. Sure, and, yeah, they have, yeah. And yet they are 33 and 28 and they're ahead of the Mets and they're ahead of the Phillies. And yep. as we've talked about plenty of times, they have that wacky one-run game record in their favor. They're 16 and four now in one-run games. So... If they could somehow make that work for the rest of the season and Luis Arise could somehow make what he's doing work for the rest of the season, he'd get MVP votes, right? Yeah. I mean, and and it would be justified because even though he is uh, largely a, a product of batting average, his batting average is so high that he's still a valuable player. Oh, I mean, yeah. 
I guess more so it looks like at Baseball Reference, according to War, than at Fangrass. Somehow at Fangrass, Luisa Rice has like negative five base running runs. I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> that's That's got to be one of the worst in the league. Yeah. He... It has, has to be about advancing on. It must be, right? Because, yeah, I yeah, would he, imagine it has to be about ability to advance, right? He's been caught stealing two times in three attempts, so not much volume there. He hasn't been thrown out on the bases very often. I, I thought maybe he had a lot of toot plans or, or something, but looks like he's only made two outs on the bases, but it must be that he has just uh, not taken the extra base. Uh, yeah. Baseball ref- yeah, Baseball Reference has a metric called extra base taken percentage, and he is down at 24%, which is very low. It's one of the lowest of the qualifying players. So evidently he's uh, taken it station to station on the bases. Oh, and he's also already grounded into a career high 10 double plays, which will happen when you put the ball in play so often and you aren't speedy. So that's got to be a big part of why he has baseball's worst base running runs figure. He's been fine in the field, maybe better than expected according to the metrics. So, I mean, if you have a 160 WRC plus and you play in most of the games and you're okay on defense, you're going to end up being one of the most valuable players in baseball. So like, I think he would get MVP votes if he somehow kept playing this way, especially if there were some extra narrative points thrown in there if the Marlins exceeded expectations. And they're in a playoff position right now. Yeah, right. They're like, if the season ended today, which would be mm-hmm. really weird because it's only June 6th, but yeah. if it did, they're they're in a wild card spot right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I hope that uh, they can each keep defying gravity for a while, especially yeah. Arise, because uh, it's been, it's really fun to watch. And then the, because of him in large part, the Marlins now have a league average offense park adjusted, <laughs> which for them is, that's a victory. That's like a big deal. They're at 100, their WRC plus, which is largely a rise. I mean, it's mostly a rise. It's more a rise than anyone else, but it's also resurgent Jorge Soler. Yeah. He's got 17 dingers, yeah. right? And yeah, the, the, the thump has returned. Yeah, very much so. And yeah. a popular breakout pick, Brian De La Cruz, has been good. Yeah, he's been good. Yuli Gurriel, I don't know if people have noticed, but Yuli Gurriel, who, who looked done as an Astro, he's been good, above average, at least offensively. Wow, he has and, a 109 WRC+, plus, which, right. like, you know, that's not... The highs he's had before, but he had no. an 85 last season. Yeah, I think maybe he's slumped a bit, but but still to have given them that. And then, you know, like Jesus Sanchez has, has given them some good hitting. So, I mean, it's always been the question, like, what's the lineup and where's the offense going to come from? And they're getting enough now that uh, if the pitching were as good as expected and advertised, then they actually might kind of deserve to be in playoff position as it is the pitching has been not bad but uh obviously hasn't been been, otherworldly either no and uh sandy alcantara has not followed up his cy young season with quite what they hoped although there's a big era fip gap there too so yeah i mean maybe by the end of the season their winning percentage could be worse. Uh, perhaps their run differential will be better <laughs> than it is now. It's been an interesting team, been a, a fun team to follow. And I am kind of curious to see how long 
they can sustain this. So we will see. I uh, just have a couple more things to note. One before, is that- Before you do, I have some breaking news for you, Ben. Ooh, you ready? breaking news. Okay. Red's lineup is out. Ooh, okay. Where's Dylan Cruz playing third. Uh-huh. Bat okay. and cleanup. Ooh, yeah. and cleanup in the debut. That's always a, it's a bold move. I always enjoy that. <sighs> they got McLean at short, India at second. Steer in left and Newman playing first. All right. Oh, so <laughs> Newman still, still yeah, found a way know, in man. there. <laughs> you know, we're, I don't know. <laughs> like like we said, it's not all the way there, you know? Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. It's not all the way there, but. Newman. Also, boy, he's so tall. He's like tall enough that they have a picture of him next to the, the lineup. And, you know, it's like there's very little else for reference in terms of his height. And you look at him and you're like, that's a, that's a tall young man. That's a tall yeah. guy. That's a tall. We need a. They're like, there are all of these like construction crane dudes coming up and in the bigs right now. They're they're not, it's different than Beef Boy, as we've noted. We need a construction crane is bad. It's my, (laughs) it's the first pancake. Don't, don't worry about it. I look forward to Ellie's first Ken Rosenthal interview. That's when we can (laughs) truly get a sense (laughs) of scale. (laughs) Love Ken. Anyway, um, so this was one thing that stood out to me as uh, sort of surprising. Do you remember... When we had a discussion earlier in the season about whether the Angels should pick up Gary Sanchez because Logan O'Hoppy had gotten hurt and it it seemed like extremely slim pickings for the Angels in the catching department. I read some quotes from Perry Manassian and Phil Nevin about how uh, they were happy with what they had. and it, It sounded like maybe they didn't have full conviction in that, but they had to say it. But they also said that they were going to be aggressive about looking for upgrades and everything. And I was citing how the projections for their catchers were quite weak compared to most teams. Somehow, I have noticed in the course of my Shohei Otani watching that the Angels catchers have hit better than most other teams in the league. So Angels catchers this year, which is including a a little of Ohapi's hot early work, but mostly not now, Angels catchers have a 113 WRC plus collectively, which places them behind only the Braves, who have Sean Murphy, and the Orioles, who have Adley Rutschman, and the Rangers, who have sudden superstar Jonah Heim, right? And after, after those teams... Then it's the Angels with a 113 WRC+. plus. So I did not see that coming. My mockery of their quotes about how they were happy with what they had. I don't know whether they actually were happy with what they had, but they have to be happy with how what they had has produced thus far. So they're only 12th in, in war. So I guess the defense has maybe not quite kept up with the offense, but didn't see that offense coming from the Angels catcher leftovers. Meanwhile, the Mets and the Padres subsequently have employed Gary Sanchez. Yeah. And in 30 plate appearances in the majors, he has a 136 WRC plus. So look at that. Gary Sanchez is uh, suddenly hitting homers for the Padres these days. I don't think you have to eat crow, but it is a surprising turn, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Mm. I I guess I could say that they should have signed Gary Sanchez because uh, he Mm. has a higher WRC plus than the Angels catchers do. But I didn't expect either of those numbers to be as high as as they've been this year. And while I'm on the subject of the Angels, I I mentioned – Ben Joyce's fastball the other day yeah, and uh, just how striking it is. 
And there was an article at Baseball Prospectus by Daniel Epstein who wrote an ode to Ben Joyce's fastball. That was the headline. And one thing I, I realized uh, about Ben Joyce's fastball from that article, I mentioned just how his delivery looks weird and it's uh, sort of max effort and kind of jerky and odd. But also, it's like almost a sidearm delivery, so it looks extra strange that that speed comes out of that release point because he releases the ball 4.8 feet off the ground, which, as Daniel notes, only 5% of MLB pitchers this year have a lower release point, and none of them throws nearly as hard as he does. So he's six foot five. And yet he is releasing the ball from this low point, and yet it is coming that fast out of his hand. And as Daniel noted, he also gets like 97th percentile extension. So he releases the ball close to home plate and also throws it harder than just about anyone else. So he has that Aroldis Chapman combo of good extension and great velocity. So it's really, really on top of you. And it's also in his case, I think extra surprising probably to hitters because of the low arm slot. So what I noticed is that he has thrown almost exclusively that fastball. Like I think he's as in love with it as anyone else is because <laughs> it's basically all he throws. I mean, he has uh, occasionally mixed in one of these uh, cutter kind of slider sort of things, his off-speed pitch, but almost never does he he throw that like it's been 94.3% four seam fastballs so far and the cutter 3.8% the slider 1.9% if those are actually different pitches that's uh, the pitch info classifications at Fangraphs so I was looking for any kind of comp to that, someone who's as four-seam reliant as Ben Joyce has been thus far. And looking back to 2008, the first full year of Pitch FX, the only guy who can compare in terms of just reliance on the four-seamer is Jake McGee. He's the only guy who's in that zip code, that area code, because wow. he, in 2014, Jake McGee threw 95.7% four-seam fastballs, and he is the only pitcher with at least 30 innings pitch to equal or exceed Ben Joyce's four-seam fastball percentage thus far. So he's really testing the contention that you need more than one pitch to be a major league pitcher, I guess, especially when you can throw 103 and... I still don't know if he's actually going to be good yeah. or not. Like, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he might not be good. I don't, I don't yeah. really know. Like, he's just, he's so wild. And also, Chaz McCormick hit a home run off him that was 102.5 miles per hour. It was the third fastest hit pitch hit for a home run in the StatCast era. And he's an okay hitter. He's not a, a great hitter. So... Will I guess uh, put that that saying to the test of how major league hitters can time velocity right? No matter how hard it is, if yep. they know it's coming, and with him, you <laughs> basically always know it's coming. You, you might not where know where it's going, and he might not either. But man, I mean, I'm kind of enjoying just this uh, extreme outlier in multiple senses. I I hope he's good enough at least to stay in the majors, so right. I can continue to marvel at him. Yeah, you want you want to see it long enough to see kind of how long it can go. Is that right. mm, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I guess. 
I have I have another bit of breaking news. It's less Ooh, fun. Okay. All Are right. Oh, yeah. Did someone break? Alec Manoa has been optioned to the Florida Complex League. Whoa. All the way down. Oh, boy. Oh, well, boy. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, if you feel like you need a, a mental break or just a, a mechanical overhaul, yeah, I guess that's one way you could do that's it. That's one way to do like, it. Yeah. Just sort of sending the message that, hey, this isn't about having one tune-up start and, and yeah. you'll be back. It's like, this is going to be a process or, yeah. you know, the pressure's off. This is just about getting you back to, to where you were before, right? Yeah. I mean, the that that is the more sort of optimistic way to look at it, right? That it's like, mm-hmm. okay, we're really yeah. going to, we're going to work this out. We're going to mm-hmm. work it out. But right. Yeah. I mean, that was uh, with Roy Halliday, right? He went down to class A, I think, when, when he got demoted and he was struggling. And then he worked with Harvey Dorfman, the sports psychologist. And, right. you know, he he worked with uh, Mel Queen and, and he revamped his his pitching mechanics. This was 2001. And, and next thing you know, he was back in the big leagues and pitching like a Hall of Famer. So it <laughs> doesn't always work that way. But I guess if you're a Blue Jays fan, you, you hope for the same sort of metamorphosis here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So... I mentioned Chapman a second ago. I think Chapman is probably one of the more obvious trade candidates, right? Just because the Royals signed him and when the Royals signed him, it was sort of like, what do the Royals want with this guy? What does anyone want with this guy maybe at this point, given how he seemed to kind of quit on the Yankees and maybe was not the best guy to begin with. So between the off the field issues and between the infected tattoo or whatever it was or him just – just this strange story and him just kind of not showing up with the Yankees and also having diminished stuff in performance. It was like uh, wither Aroldis Chapman. Well, yeah. the, the Royals signed him and I don't know whether they signed him with the express purpose of uh, trying to rehabilitate him and then trade him. But if so, that seems to have worked out and he seems like one of the guys who will obviously be dealt. But it's kind of hard to figure out what the trade deadline will look like at this point, right? Because, uh, and I've seen some chatter to that effect and and Rangers GM Chris Young was uh, talking about how he thinks the trade deadline will be slow to develop. Not that the Rangers appear to need a whole lot of help these days, but but I I wonder just like when that picture will become clear or whether it actually will be just a very slow deadline because – we were talking the other day about how much parity there is right now and, and how little separation there seems to be in most of the divisions and how very few teams are out of it. And the teams that are obviously out of it aren't exactly packed with appealing players right. that uh, contending teams would be salivating over. So it's sort of hard to see what the contending teams, which at this point is like most of them will actually be getting when they're picking over the carcasses of these non-contending rosters. It's like, yeah, the A's are sellers, I guess. Yeah, but okay. Yeah, they they can't seem to sell Las Vegas on a publicly funded ballpark, but can they actually uh, trade any of their players if they want to? Because uh, famously, they just don't have a lot of very good players left. They have dealt them all already. Yeah, didn't they release Jesus Aguilar the other day? I think I saw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I saw that transaction come across the transom. Plus, it's like you have, you know, 
you have a bunch of guys who are hurt is the other thing. I mean, we always have injuries, but we sure have a lot of injuries and we have a lot of injured pitchers. So it's like you throw that into the mix and yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like. Of course I say that. And then the monkey paw is going to curl and then I'm going to be awake until 3am on deadline yeah. day. So like, you know, what do I, what do I even mean? What, mm-hmm. what am I, what am I rooting for, Ben? You know, what mm-hmm. are my incentives? Who knows? But yeah, I do think it's going to be odd. I will be curious to see what Chapman's market develops into both because I'm curious sort of how, his off the field stuff is sort of contextualized by teams, but the stuff that's further in, in the past, which was um, more alarming and the stuff that's more recent, which I think, unfortunately, baseball people are probably going to put greater store in. And I'm also curious, like how, how real people perceive this to be. I mean, like the velo uptick is, is very real. Like you can't Mm -hmm. throw in two ticks harder, Mm -hmm. throw in two whole ticks harder, Ben. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> He's not giving up a single home run. Yeah. How yeah. about that? <laughs> yeah. There are always teams that uh, look like they won't be motivated to offload and, and then things and then happen and then they do. Yeah. So we've got uh, several weeks to go yeah. until we get down to deadline crunch time. So yeah. so stuff will happen, you know, and and someone will fall out of it and yeah. and maybe maybe the White Sox are completely out of it by that point or maybe the Cardinals are, right? I, it's hard to say because uh, <laughs> these central divisions are so weak right. that you don't actually have to be, I mean, like, you know, you look at the Guardians in their slow start, as we've talked about, but then suddenly Tristan McKenzie comes back and beats the Twins, and they're only like three and a half back, and it's like, oh, they could very easily overtake the the Twins. And even the White Sox are only five and a half back, like, they could talk themselves into contending. So if they have a bad next uh, several weeks, uh, if the Cardinals do, maybe... Gosh, it'd be weird to have the Cardinals uh, be a team that was looking to deal players at the deadline, but that could happen because you have like the Royals and the A's who have already dealt a lot of guys. You have the Reds who already dealt a lot of guys and and now are playing better to the point where they could talk themselves into potentially contending in that division, or at least they might not have a lot of players left they would actually be interested in trading at this point. You have the Nationals, okay, but again, how much do the Nationals have left that uh, contending teams would want? You have the Giants, potentially. Potentially. You have the Rockies, but no one ever knows what the Rockies are going to do, right? <laughs> they're going to trade for five relievers. What are you yeah. talking about? We know exactly what they're going to do. They're not going to move anyone of note, and they're somehow going to have more dudes in the bullpen. That's how yeah, it's going to go. they might trade four guys, or they might do absolutely nothing. There's just never any telling what the Rockies are going to do, right? So it's only like a handful of teams you can kind of count on for for teams to come flocking to and, and say, uh, can we have this guy? And there aren't that many guys on most of those rosters. So it's shaping up to be a very dull deadline, but I've been surprised before when it comes to deadlines being more or less active than I thought they'd be. So I don't feel like I, I have a, a great ability to forecast that. It just seems like given the standings and the state of everything, that's that it's just a formula for not that much movement. Yeah, it does it does feel like there will be a lot that gets determined around that is gonna 
unfold over the next couple of weeks. Because right now, you're right, there's just too many teams that are like in it or in it if you squint or not good, <laughs> but in a yeah. way that makes them uninteresting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like who... Who knows? Uh, are listeners detecting escalating panic in my voice when I realize how soon that is? I mean, like, you know, that's another thing that we will see over the next couple of weeks. We'll judge as as things unfold. Um, and we're not we're not worrying about it right now. Why would we? It really mm-hmm. sucks that it's on a Tuesday, Ben. Mm, Tuesday, yeah. I feel like the trade deadline, it should have to be on a Thursday. Mm. I'm advocating for this. Selfishly, I want to acknowledge yeah. that my incentives around this are completely different than other people's. But like, <laughs> if the trade deadline is on a Tuesday, you do all the stuff on deadline day, and then you have to work three more days mm-hmm. in the week, you know. Yeah. And I anticipate being very tired, so <laughs> I I feel like we're we're dropping the ball here. Make it, you know, it's like it should be one of those holidays that's on a set day yeah. of the final, you know, the final Thursday of the seventh month of the when you sacrifice the this and then that. <laughs> yeah. Why yeah. do they not consult the managing editors on these things before they schedule them? But I mean, they barely consult their own teams <laughs> in terms of when they schedule the draft. So I, I understand yes. where I fall, you know, in the hierarchy. I'm not suggesting mm-hmm. that anyone should listen to me, but like, what if you did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It could be a better world. And lastly, I, I guess, uh, some people may have seen that Albert Pujols picked up a couple no, new jobs. Yeah. So he is now a special assistant to Rob Manfred with a focus on player relations in the Dominican Republic. And uh, one wonders if, if he will be part of uh, trying to persuade players to support an international draft. He has also been hired by MLB Network as an on-air analyst and will appear across multiple programs. And if you're like me, you saw this news and wondered, how does this affect Albert Pujols' existing employment with the Angels? Because, of course, he has that personal services contract. Yeah. Samblum of The Athletic did investigate that, and he tweeted, in case anyone was wondering like I was, and I, in fact, was, Albert Pujols does still work for the Angels as a special assistant (laughs) as part of his personal services contract. There is some precedent for people working for both the team and the league. So Pujols now has at least three jobs in his post-retirement and uh, two or three different employers uh, in addition to, I guess, making Cardinals-related appearances every now and then. So if you are worried that being on air on MLB Network or or being uh, on Rob Manfred's special assistant speed dial would distract him from his important duties with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, not the case. He can do it all. He has the bandwidth for all of these special assistancies. Albert, you're not a millennial. You don't have to em- embrace the grind set. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's you know. just gig work, just left and right. He's Jeez. picking up gigs. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I imagine if you've been a, a baseball player for a really, really long time, it's hard to let the game go. And like you clearly care about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of these guys look at their post-playing career time and are like, well, I'd like to still contribute something and have an impact on the game that I love. But if it were me, I would have zero jobs mm-hmm. and would simply like be on a beach or something. I'd be like yeah. reading, you know, mm-hmm. I'd be like not working at all because yeah. um, he's done well for himself. Yes, you know? he does. Yeah. And uh, I know very invested in his philanthropic work, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't want to yuck his yum because if he thinks he has something to give, okay, that's fine. But you could have fewer jobs, you know, <laughs> you Albert. You don't, you're not obligated to have so many jobs. Don't feel like you have to have so many jobs is my Yeah, point. 
yeah, I, I'm sure that some of them are are fairly low <laughs> intensity. I would think that uh, just the number of hours required. I, I imagine he gets to set his own schedule to some extent, especially because he's juggling so many different employers. And I said of Anaheim. I know they dropped the of Anaheim from their name, but really, we're just going to let them get away with Los Angeles Angels. I mean, no, it feels like truth in advertising. You really should append the of Anaheim, even though it's not technically part of the name anymore. Also, one more question for you. Do you think that players will be more fatigued at the end of the season than typically because of the pitch clock or less fatigued because they will not be on the field for as long cumulatively? Mm. So more fatigued because they're they're playing at a more rapid pace and they get less of a break between pitches. I guess this could be different answers for pitchers and for other players potentially, but more fatigued because of that because they're just uh, rushing, rushing, hurrying, hurrying while they're on the field or less fatigued because, I mean, think of the catchers and how much less crouching they're doing over the course of a season or the fielders uh, not being on the field for as long. Will we get to the end of the season and they'll feel like it's a load off, like they're fresh as daisies because – They've spent, you know, half an hour times 162 uh, less time on the field. Can I offer a really boring answer? Mm -hmm. I think it'll be the same. (laughs) Like, I think that those two things are going to push and pull in such a way that they offset one another in all likelihood. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Um, oh, haha, I have a very, I have a, a galaxy brained. It's not, it's just a, another take for you, which is that like for playoff teams, they will be even more tired because they play more games in the playoffs. Now, if you're going uh-huh. a long run, you've played some more games. Wow. Genius. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think it'll be about the same because you're right that like, particularly for pitchers, they have less time between, but also in general, like everybody's playing less. I mean, I guess it depends. Okay. Now I have to complicate my answer. So <laughs> maybe the pitchers will be more, a little more tired on average and the position players who aren't room room guys will be less tired. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Right. Because the pitchers like you're you're sure the game is shorter, but like if you're a starter who goes five, six innings like that doesn't matter for you. The game being shorter doesn't affect anything for you. Mm -hmm. If you're Mm -hmm. a reliever and you go an inning at a time, like it doesn't you know, you're just dealing with the pitch clock and it's like, what is the what is that contributing to your baseline fatigue level? I don't know. I don't you know, probably making you a little more tired. Um, and we haven't really seen fastball velocities decline, so I don't know that we can say, oh, yeah, yeah like, do, it's not like, you know, they're they're starting to throw less hard as a result of having less recovery time. I don't think we've seen that borne out yet, right? No, no. Right? Although so, you could think that maybe that will catch up with them later yeah. in the season, potentially. Oh, yeah. So then, but then do they become less tired because they're more tired? That doesn't <laughs> seem how fatigue, like how fatigue works, at least in my experience of it. But I imagine that for... The position players, you know, maybe they're a little less, a little less tired. I imagine it'll be an uh, an imperceptible difference to a a player, though, right? I think they're all pretty exhausted by the end of the year. Yeah, 
Yeah, they're they're all banged up and they're yeah. all yeah yeah. But I could imagine a little less so. Just uh, just the less time on your feet over the course of a season. It, it's got to add up. I would think for catchers, like I was it's just the about same, to say. Yeah, it's the same number of, of pitches you're catching, but, but less time on your you know yeah, with your knees like squatting. that. That's meaningful. Right. Yeah, I would think so, right? So we'll see if that means that uh, catchers decline a little less offensively as the season goes on or or maybe they need fewer days off. I guess it could also manifest itself that way where it's uh, maybe your freshness is, is kind of compromised by then teams deciding that they don't need to give you as many days off and then you end up just as tired, but you played a little more. So we'll see how teams handle that. But just uh, something I was wondering about. It would be nice if at the end of it, all the catchers were like, you know, I feel spry. I feel better. I feel yeah. better than I have in years. Mm-hmm. Really worry about catchers, Ben. Yeah. I, I I'm worrying too. about them more and more lately, actually. I'm like, because mm-hmm. sometimes I watch them and I'm just like, you guys are, mm-hmm. uh, are people worried about you enough? I think we should worry about you more. I've been worrying yeah. about them. Yeah, I worry. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't worry as much as I worry about Alec Manoa, but I worry. I guess I guess the complex league, like that's where teams tend to have their their pitching labs yeah. set up, right? So yeah. that's a It'll natural be... place to send someone. Yeah, I I think that it's less for me about the level as it is that where it's like, okay, you're really going in for a full overhaul because that's yeah. where your dev stuff tends to be based. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. All right, just Ben here now. It is time for the Pass Blast, which is usually provided by David Lewis. However, David, like me, is not 100% healthy, so this Pass Blast will come to you from 2016 and also from me. In the second half of the 2015 season, scoring in Major League Baseball spiked largely because the home run rate spiked. Quoting from an article I wrote with Rob Arthur for 538 in 2016, the home run on contact rate last August was higher than it had been in any month since August 2009, and the rate last September slash October was higher than it had been in any month since August 2004. On the whole, the percentage increase in second half home runs on contact relative to first half home runs on contact was higher for the 2015 regular season than for any previous season since at least 1950. Potential explanations abounded. Some people chalked it up to warmer weather. Some people thought it was an influx of hard-hitting rookies in 2015. Some thought it was pitchers being shut down early. But none of those explanations seemed to explain what we saw. And as the home run spike continued into 2016, more articles were written not just by me, and more and more people paid attention to this increase in home runs, and some of them asked Commissioner Rob Manford about it. So in his annual session with the baseball writers at the All-Star Game in 2016, Manford was asked whether it could be PEDs, and he quite reasonably downplayed that possibility. So what was the answer? Manford said, we think it has to do with the way pitchers pitch and the way hitters are being taught to play the game. You've seen some unusual developments in terms of home run hitters being up in the lineup to get them more at bats. So we think it has more to do with the game this time around because we're comfortable we're doing everything we can on the performance-enhancing drugs front. This article at ESPN by Jerry Krasnick continues, Manfred also discounted the theory that changes in the baseball used by MLB might be contributing to the rising power numbers. He said MLB has done extensive testing on the baseballs and found no changes. In 2013, Nippon Professional Baseball Commissioner Ryozo Kato resigned amid a scandal over livelier baseballs in Japan. Manfred said there are certain mistakes in life that if you pay attention to what's going on around you, you are not inclined to make. 
There was a scandal in Japan over the baseball being changed that cost the commissioner his job. I like my current gig, so I think you can rest assured that the baseball is the same as it was last year. And this is where the Ron Howard Arrested Development narrator says, no, it wasn't. MLB did do testing, but it evidently didn't do the right testing. It didn't test the drag. In May 2018, a report was released by a 10-member committee charged by the Office of the Commissioner of Baseball to identify the potential causes of the increase in the rate at which home runs were hit in 2015, 2016, and 2017. That committee concluded, StatCast data show that the increases in home runs are primarily due to better carry for given launch conditions, exit velocity, launch angle, spray angle, as opposed to a change in launch conditions. The better carry results in longer fly ball distances for given launch conditions and therefore more home runs. Analysis shows that the better carry is not due to changes in temperature, but rather to changes in the aerodynamic properties of the baseball itself, specifically to those properties affecting the drag. There is supporting evidence that the aerodynamic properties of the baseballs have changed, both from laboratory measurements and from analysis of stat cast slash track man trajectories, both for pitched and batted balls. Additionally, a physics-based model for the flight of the baseball shows that small changes changes in the aerodynamic properties of the baseball that are comparable to the measured changes in the drag coefficient since 2015 can explain the observed increase in home run production over the period studied. Suggestions that changes in batter behavior, such as pole hitting or trying to hit the ball at a higher launch angle, might be contributing to the surge are not borne out by the StatCast data. There has been no significant change in these aspects of batter behavior that correlates to an increase in home run hitting. The committee did not determine exactly what was causing the reduced drag, and of course it did not determine that MLB had intentionally produced a lower drag ball. But this was a vindication of the many public analyses that seemed to show something suspicious about the ball's behavior, even as MLB maintained that the ball wasn't to blame. The drag was further reduced in 2017-2019 when the home run rate peaked, and although MLB did deadened the ball after that. As we discussed recently, it remains extremely lively by historical standards, and Rob Manfred remains commissioner. After we recorded today, Luis Arise went two for four, raising his batting average yet again to 401. Also, Ellie De La Cruz announced his arrival with authority, hitting a 112-mile-per-hour double that was the hardest-hit ball by a Cincinnati Red this season. He also showed off some elite sprint speeds and walked a couple times and scored a run in the Reds' 9-8 walk-off win over the Dodgers. There was was evidently a boost of about 6,000 fans relative to the typical Tuesday game crowd this season in Cincinnati. Fans were chanting his name, were watching every pitch, and he didn't disappoint. Love when the rookie shows up and instantly does something that no one else on the team has done all season. Also, as a follow-up to last week's stat blast about home teams winning extra inning games less often than they win non-extra inning games and the effect the zombie runner has had on that, Ben Clemens wrote about it for Fangraphs, and he suggested the same explanation I did, which was that home field advantage is cumulative, that it accrues the longer the game goes, and thus it stands to reason that it would be less pronounced in extra innings, especially if there are fewer extra innings in the zombie runner era. The difference is that Ben brought some data and evidence to that effect, so I will link to that on the show page. Lastly, two injury updates after we recorded. Aaron Judge did go on the 10-day injured list with a bruise and ligament sprain in his injured toe. The Dodgers are apparently reinforcing the fence that he 
crashed into and also adding a strip of padding on the concrete portion where he jammed the toe. And finally, Jacob deGrom's UCL sproined. It was very disappointing news, but not entirely unexpected news. You may remember my mini rant about Jacob deGrom and the uncertain outlook for his elbow back when we talked about it in late April on episode 2001. Here's a short compilation of some comments I made then. Just following him and feeling like he's always on the verge of breaking and not wanting him to, but just being like, gosh, just put us out of our misery. Just get it over with. If you're going to get Tommy John again one of these days, just just do it already. Just stop putting us through this. I don't want him to have to do that, obviously. Yeah. But there's always something that is nagging that is possibly going to cause his demise. It's just, ah, I can't take it anymore. I just, I want him to either be healthy <laughs> Or just like, man, it's just, it's so stressful. I'm sure more for Rangers fans and obviously more for him (laughs) than for me. But even for me, I'm just like, I'm worried when he's pitching that day. Instead of being excited, I'm like, what's going to go wrong and what's going to give him pain this time? So now there's no more uncertainty, but there's also no more Jacob deGrom for quite some time, most likely until at least late next season, if not 2025. And as you could tell from his tears when he was talking about this, he's very disappointed. He's been through this before. He knows what's in store. We'll probably talk about this more next time. I will be writing about it for The Ringer. But my immediate takeaways are relief that there's a definitive diagnosis and treatment plan coupled with dismay that we may never see Peak DeGrom again. He is about to turn 35. There are also the implications for the first place Rangers, who've amassed the fourth most fangrass pitching war so far this season, even with only 30 and a third excellent innings from DeGrom. This obviously makes it more difficult for them to hang on to their lead and to advance in October. If this is the end of the great DeGrom, it may preclude the possibility that his peak could carry him to Cooperstown someday. It's a heck of a peak, but his late start combined with his intermittent unavailability over the past few seasons means that there's a lack of volume there. We may also need to anoint a new best pitcher in baseball, a title that DeGrom has informally held for some time now. I'm not sure he has an undisputed successor. And finally, there's the aspect of this that could be a cautionary tale for other pitchers, as I'll be touching on in my ringer piece, as I've written about and talked about before. Throwing max effort seems to amplify injury risk, and season by season, DeGrom has thrown closer to his personal max, as has the league as a whole. So he's sort of MLB's pitching injury issues in microcosm. Unbelievable stuff combined with a tendency to break down, and not even his relatively light workloads in recent years could prevent him from hurting himself. So year after year, we see lower pitch counts, lower innings totals, more rest between outings, and seemingly just as many arm injuries, because the pitches and the innings that these guys throw close to the top of their speed ranges just take too much out of them. I've been wondering aloud for years whether throwing just a little slower might help DeGrom avoid this outcome, and of course, there's no way to know whether it would have. But I hope that the league can put rules in place that would make it a little less tempting to throw as hard as possible at all times. I think most pitchers would gladly give up a UCL and all the time it takes to come back from a UCL replacement if it meant that they could pitch at Jacob deGrom's level for years. 
but DeGrom was dominant when he was throwing 96, not 99. So who knows? Maybe he could have kept doing that even longer. By the way, DeGrom's contract, like Strasburg's, also reportedly uninsured because of high premiums. His contract does include a conditional option for 2028 that is triggered by this Tommy John surgery. So unlike, say, Luis Garcia's Tommy John surgery, this is one where we can't say we didn't see it coming. And yet, as DeGrom himself said, this stinks. Here's something that doesn't stink. Our listeners supporting Effectively Wild on Patreon. You can be one of them by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks. The following five listeners already have David Simon, Buck, Joseph Payne, Joseph Sverchek, and Lauren Odessa. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, as well as monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, expedited answers to emails, discounts on ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more, patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. You can also send us your questions and comments via email at podcast.fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild. The outro theme you're about to hear was submitted by Alex Eichler, inspired by Night Shift, the classic song by his and my favorite boy genius member, Lucy Dacus. Thanks to you all for enduring my voice today. I hope it'll be better soon. And one way or another, we will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. It's time for Yeah.